Good morning. It is always a privilege to be able to gather here with God's people at New Village Church and to open the Word of God together and to share and, and uh, just speak about the truths that God has revealed to us. And um, I'm just thankful for you uh, opening your doors to me and allowing me to come and, and minister with you this morning. And as uh, Pastor Muster just mentioned, one of the things that we're pursuing out in uh, Cavalry Baptist Church out in Riverhead is we are looking, uh, hopefully in the very near future, Lord willing, to open up a uh, biblical counseling center uh, where we're able to minister to people using the Word of God. And I'm actually pursuing certification with ACBC, which is the uh, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. So it's, um, we would definitely appreciate your prayers as we move forward and pursue that ministry that the Lord would open up a door if that would be his will. And uh, I would appreciate your prayers. So thank you. And what we're going to be looking at this morning is we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So if you're uh, using one of the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, you can find that on page 1369. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 22. And we're going to be looking at this text in particular this morning because I believe it's one of the most important passages in all of the Bible because really the reality is our faith in Christ hinges on the resurrection. We're going to be looking at Paul's argument for the truth and the importance of the resurrection because really that's what holds everything that we believe together. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, my hope is that you'll come away that understanding that your faith is not blind faith. It's faith that's rooted in actual events in history, things that really happened. If you're not uh, a believer in Christ, if you're not a follower and you're here this morning, my hope for you is that you'll come to see the claims that the Christian faith makes are true. They're not stories. They're not legends. They're not matters of opinion. They're matters of historical fact. So with that, let's read our text this morning. Again, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that, Christ, uh, that, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you, God, for the truth of the resurrection. And we just thank you as we gather here today that uh, you would be with us, that your spirit would fill this place, that your, your, this place would be filled with your glory. I just pray, God, that as we go through the truth of your word, that you would engage our hearts, that you would engage our minds, help us to see the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus. We just thank you for this privilege. We just thank you in his name. To him be the glory in the church in all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, you might be wondering why a sermon on the resurrection? Why today on September 17th, 2017? And the reason I say that is because most of the time what preachers will do is they reserve sermons about the resurrection for when? For Easter. Right. But I am convinced more and more that in this day and age, in this society that we live in, where most people equate faith with feelings and not fact, that we just understand how important it is that the the faith that we hold, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is rooted in events that actually happened. Our faith is not based on feelings. It is based on truth. But the sad fact is, most people that we know in this day and age would say the opposite. They would say, I believe what I believe because it's what I feel. If you were to walk down the street here, for example, to the Smith Haven Mall and you were to ask passers-by what they believed about God and and the afterlife, you're going to get a whole host of answers. You might hear things like, I'm an atheist. I don't believe that there's a God. You might hear, I believe that there's a God, and, and the truth is I think all religions, all people of faith, really worship the same God. There's just different paths to get to him. Now, if you're a Christian, it's narrow-minded for you to think that there's only one way to God. There are many ways to God. You just have to figure out which one feels right to you. You might hear that. You also might hear that what I believe may be true for me, but that doesn't mean it's true for you. Uh, That's okay, and really it's intolerant of you to try to force your beliefs on anyone else. You might also hear, what I believe works for me. It makes me feel good about myself, and that's really what's important, isn't it? You might also hear, well, you know, religion is not about facts, it's about faith. If you were to follow that up with a question and you were to ask them, why do you believe that? The answers you get would would surely astonish you, but none of them would be grounded in truth. If you were to ask one of those people, how do you know that what you believe is right? You might hear them say, I don't think it's a matter of right or wrong. As long as your faith helps you to be a better person, I don't care what you believe in. Now, if you were to ask those same people what they believe about 2 plus 2 equaling 4, how would you respond to the following answers? It's narrow-minded to think that there's only one right answer. All answers are equally valid. Now, keep in mind, 2 plus 2 equals 4. You might hear, I'm a free spirit. I just follow my intuition. I'm going to go with 42. What if you heard, uh, belief in those unique properties of the number 26 has really changed my life? I know in my heart that the answer is 26. It's given me my best life now. You might also hear, who has time for questions like these? It's all so complicated. Who really cares anyway? At the end of the day, no one can really know what 2 plus 2 really is. Now, obviously those answers are ridiculous. It's patently absurd to say that 2 plus 2 equals anything but 4. Now, why is that? It's an indisputable fact. 2 plus 2 equals 4 no matter what. It's undeniable truth. 
It is absolute certainty. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're a math teacher, please don't come up to me after the sermon and say, I can tell you when 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4. I know, that's not the point. Uh, The point is, we really don't live that way in the real world. So why would we live that way when it comes to matters of faith? Now, I think the reason that we do that is we live in a society that 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 believes faith and truth are not compatible, that they don't go together. They believe, as I said earlier, that faith, faith is based on feelings, that it can't be based on facts, and because of that, we as Christians, we struggle to present the gospel of Jesus Christ as a matter of historical fact. The reality is, though, the Christian faith is founded and rooted on in, in the truth of the resurrection. It connects us as God's people to t- today to actual things that happened in history, and we can be certain of them. Just as certain as we can be that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And because the resurrection of Jesus is central to the truth of the gospel, we must understand how significant it is. Paul says in the opening verses of this passage that it's as of first importance. So we're going to look at three things this morning about the resurrection of Jesus. Three things in our text that if we examine them closely, they help us to understand why the resurrection is so important to the truth of Christianity. As we read this passage from 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to come to see three things. We're going to first come to understand that the resurrection of Jesus is preeminent. Paul says that it's as of first importance. We'll also see that the resurrection of Jesus is factual. We can believe it's factual because it's based on eyewitness testimony. There's evidence for the facts of the resurrection. And finally, we're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus means life. For those that believe, for those that have turned to him in faith and repentance, the resurrection means for us life. So the first thing we have to understand is that the the resurrection of Jesus is preeminent. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, Paul's describing the gospel here in its simplest, most concise form, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Now, that's certainly not every aspect of the gospel, but it's which is as of first importance, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason why that's as of first importance is this. If there's no resurrection, there's no gospel. If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith. Now, if you're not familiar with, a lynch, or with what a linchpin is, it's something that holds things together. Now, I want you to picture with me a car driving down the highway at 60 miles an hour, and the wheels come off. What would happen to that car? It would crash. It would get destroyed. Now, the linchpin is what holds the wheels onto the car. And Paul is saying that the same, that's the same thing about Christianity. The, the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith. If we don't have the resurrection, if that gets taken away, it's like taking the linchpin out of the car and the wheels would come off. Let's look at what Paul says if there's no resurrection from the dead, or resurrection of the dead. He gives us eight things. Look with me at verse 13. It says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
So if the resurrection isn't true, then Christ himself is dead and in the ground. And if that's true, we see in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then I'm just wasting my time this morning and you're wasting your time listening to me because these things are just empty words. And if that's not bad enough, look at verse 15. It says, We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from whom, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So if it's true that Christ hasn't been raised, then we're false witnesses of God. A most heinous thing if there ever was one. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You see, a dead Savior can't save anyone. Anything less than a risen Savior is no Savior at all because of the objective faith, uh, the objective truth of our faith. The things that we're putting our faith in, Christ, the object of our faith, is dead, if that's true. The thing that we're putting our faith in is not able to save us. And he says, therefore, our faith is futile. It's useless. You see, the resurrection is proof that God accepted the payment of Jesus. He accepted the payment that he made for our sins. So if there's no resurrection, that means the payment was rejected and we're still in our sins. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now the term here, fallen asleep, is referring to Christians who have died in the faith, who have died in the Lord. And Paul uses that term, fallen asleep, to give us the sense that for the Christian, those who have, uh, for those who have turned in repentance and faith to Christ, those who are resting all of their hope on him to save them, death is benign as taking a nap. That's why he's using that term, fallen asleep, here. It's, it's, it's like we're taking a nap when we pass from this life and we're ushered into eternity, waiting for the resurrection of the body. Paul says elsewhere, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep are truly dead and in outer darkness, suffering the wrath of God for all eternity because they've died in their sins. Because no matter how zealous they were for their good deeds, their, their deeds were not enough to justify them before holy God. And what that means, as we see in verse 19, is that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, then we have no hope apart from the here and now. Now, I want us to consider for a moment the life that Paul lived and the sacrifices that he made to spread the good news about Jesus Christ in, in this world. He says in verse 30, why are, in, why, are, why are we in danger every hour? In another place, Paul explains that he is often in danger of death. Five times I have received 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now we see that this life means to Paul. We see what it means. It means risk and peril and danger and suffering, all in the service of love. 
And what Paul is saying here, that if Christ has not been raised and our hope is in this life only, he's wasted his life and he's a fool, a pitiable fool. See, the resurrection of Jesus is preeminent because if it's not true, then all of the things that I mentioned are true. If the resurrection is not true, then Christ has not been raised. If the resurrection is not true, our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We're misrepresenting God. Our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. The dead have perished, and we're most to be pitied. Now, that's quite the list. Wouldn't you agree? But what if the resurrection is true? If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then it, if it actually happened, then everything else that Jesus says concerning himself is also true. What do I mean by that? If the resurrection is true, when Jesus says in John chapter 2, verse 29, concerning his resurrection, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Further along in John's gospel, in chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If the resurrection of true, or the, if the resurrection is true, and if Jesus was right, then we have to take very seriously everything that he said concerning himself. For example, Jesus said also in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is saying here is that there aren't many paths to God but one, him. He is the only way to the Father. Jesus says also in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. There aren't many gods, but one true God. And Jesus himself is that God. So if the resurrection of Jesus is true, if everything that he said about himself is true, then what we believe about Jesus is a matter of life and death. It's that important. Now, I can hear some of you thinking maybe, that's a pretty big if. Why should we believe that the resurrection of Jesus is true? That brings us to my second point. The thing, the thing that we must understand about the resurrection is that it's factual. The resurrection of Jesus is a matter of fact. Look with me at verse 20. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul makes a really bold statement here. He makes the statement that the resurrection of Jesus is a matter of fact. Now, how could Paul have such confidence in the resurrection? How can he have such confidence to say that it's a matter of fact? What we're going to do now is we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at two compelling reasons for having confidence in the truth of the resurrection. Two things that give us the confidence to say that these things actually happened. The first thing we're going to look at is eyewitness testimony. And the second thing we're going to look at is Paul's own conversion. Now, my opinion is, if we look at these two things together, it makes a very, very compelling case. I'd say indisputable. So what's the first thing that you hear uh, if a reporter tells a story on the news? So you hear a reporter giving a story on the news. What do they typically say, especially about a crime? They'll say things like, witnesses say. What makes their story credible is eyewitness testimony. In a court of law, when pleading their case, what plaintiffs will do and defendants will do is call witnesses. They'll call people to give account of what they heard and what they saw, 
And that weighs heavily on the facts of the case, and it weighs heavily on the outcome. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's making the case for the resurrection of Jesus, and he's doing it using eyewitness testimony. And that was very important to the earliest Christians. Eyewitness testimony was really, really important to them. For example, when, when selecting Judas Iscariot's replacement, Peter gives the following qualification. It says in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, So one of the men who have, appoint, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Luke, uh, who was the author of Acts and not himself an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, he was very careful when relaying his account to Theophilus. He laid, his account, he laid it out by saying, this is what he heard from eyewitnesses. For example, in the introduction to Luke's gospel, he writes this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke was a physician. He was very concerned about relaying the facts of the gospel, of his case to Theophilus. Prior to his ascension in Luke's Gospel, we read uh, the ascension of Jesus in chapter 24, verse 48. It says, you are witnesses of these things. Luke writes again in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, that, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, eyewitness testimony was foundational to the earliest claims of the Christians, to their earliest claims about the truth of the resurrection. And it gets even more compelling when we talk about eyewitness testimony. Look with me at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, And then he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter. That's another name for Peter. It says, Then to the twelve. See, Peter was among the first to see the risen Christ. Peter and John were the first men to see that Jesus' tomb was empty. And Peter was among the first to actually see him risen from the dead. Now, I want you to realize that, that for the earliest Christians, Christian followers, they weren't easily persuaded. Many of them, after following Jesus for three years, had their doubts. If you remember back to the, the account of the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus in the Garden on the night before he was crucified, when the soldiers came to arrest him, what did the disciples do? They fled. They, they took off. They scattered. They fled, and Peter himself went on to deny Jesus three times. See, they had their doubts. And as Jesus hung on the cross, who among his disciples were there? Just John. The rest of them were scattered. They had taken off. Now, what persuaded Christ's earliest followers? It was the appearance of the risen Christ. It was seeing him raised from the dead. And they were persuaded because they, they, after seeing him, they believed that it was true. They were witnesses to the risen Christ. Now, we're all familiar with the story of Doubting Thomas. He said, 
Unless I see and feel the marks in his hands and in his side, I will never believe. But what was his reaction after he saw Christ? After Christ appeared and, and he put his hands in his, or, or felt the wounds in his hands and the wounds in his side. He bowed down and confessed, my Lord and my God. Christ's earliest followers were compelled to believe because they saw him risen from the dead. Now, there are many skeptics that try and dismiss this eyewitness testimony. And we don't have time this morning to get into all the various theories and, and all the ways that they try to, uh, to, to convince people that their skepticism is correct. But one thing that none of them are able to explain away is this. Look with me at verse 6. It says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Again, that means some have died. So essentially, Paul is saying, Jesus was seen by 500 people at one time, and most of them are still here. Now, you couldn't write something like that if it wasn't true. And what Paul is saying here is that the, resur- the resurrection didn't happen in a corner. It wasn't something that happened in private. It was public, and a lot of people saw it. A lot of people saw it. You see, one of the sad facts of our day is that there are people who actually claim that the Holocaust never happened. Maybe, maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've seen things like this talked about in, in the news, on the Internet. And when you hear a statement like that, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking, but sadly, there are people out there who actually believe it. In response to that claim, one person writes this, and I quote, How can people still believe that the Holocaust never happened when there's so much proof that it did? We have pictures of concentration camps and books and survivors. Plus, this was not that long ago. People would know if it were a lie or not. I just don't get it. I think people should ask my teacher's grandmother about it. She's a Holocaust survivor and was a victim of cruel experiments. They should ask the people who have seen their families killed before their eyes. How could anyone deny the Holocaust? And what I want you to realize in here in verse 6, Paul is saying the exact same thing about the resurrection. He's basically saying, how can anyone deny the resurrection? It wasn't that long ago from their perspective. You see, 1 Corinthians was most likely written within 25 to 30 years of Jesus' resurrection. So for them, it didn't happen that long ago. He says, we have more than 500 witnesses, and most of them are still here. They're still alive. If you don't believe me, go ask one of them. You see, Paul couldn't say those things unless the resurrection were true. It says in verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The James mentioned here by Paul is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And you see, James, and along with his other brothers, they were skeptical of Jesus during his earthly ministry. But they came to faith when they saw him risen from the dead. It says in John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So think about that from James' perspective for a moment. He grew up with Jesus. He saw him heal the sick and the blind. He saw him cast out demons. He saw him raise other people from the dead. But it wasn't until James saw Christ raised himself that he believed. The resurrection was that compelling. I mean, think about it. If anybody were to deny that Christ was who he said he was, it would have been James. He grew up with Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. Think about brothers or sisters that you may have 
You've seen them be disobedient to parents. You've seen them do all sorts of things. So if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, James would have never come to faith. But the resurrection cemented it for him. He saw the risen Christ and he believed. Lastly here, we have Paul's own conversion. Look with me at verse 8. Paul writes, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter six, or 26. Acts 26. You can find that if you're using a pew Bible on page 1333. And I just want to look for a moment at, at, moment at Paul's own account of his own conversion. He's talking to King Agrippa. And he says, starting in verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So we chased after them. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus where the authority and commission of the chief priests under their authority and midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fall, fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to these things which you have seen, to which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering from you your people and from the Gentiles, whom I, who I am sending to you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may, rec- may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not obedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now, the irony here is that Paul, who himself was a Jew, a Pharisee, which means he was among the religious elite of the day, He was sent by the Jews to arrest and kill Christians for blasphemy. The irony is that he himself was arrested by the Jews and they wanted to kill him. Now, how do we explain this conversion of Paul? How do we explain this conversion of a a devout Jew who was zealous, who was full of fury and anger against the Christians? How do we explain that conversion if not by a work of God, if the resurrection was not true, if what he saw on that day on the road to Emmaus didn't actually happen. Now, if you want to read about Paul's zealousness as a Pharisee, just turn to Philippians chapter 15. We don't have time, or chapter 3, I'm sorry. Uh, We don't have time to go there today, but you can read about uh, Paul's testimony about how he was as a Pharisee. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was a killer of Christians. 
But after this encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he was so changed by that event that he went on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Think about that. It's compelling. He had an encounter with the risen Christ. Now, because of the eyewitness testimony and the conversion of Paul, we can believe that the resurrection really happened. And because the resurrection of Jesus really happened, because it's true, the opposite of all those things that Paul wrote in verses 14 through 19 are true. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, our preaching is not in vain, but is powerful unto God. Our faith is not in vain, but dynamic. We are not misrepresenting God, but we are true witnesses to the risen Christ. Our faith is not futile, and we have been forgiven our sins. Those who have died in Christ have not perished. Our hope is not in this life only, but we have hope in the life to come. See, when our faith is based on the truth of Christianity, what Paul and the apostles claim to have happened really actually happened. And when we believe this, when we really believe that it happened, we're less likely to be overwhelmed by the storms of life. When faced with difficulties, we're less likely to to fall apart. We're less likely to have doubts when we understand that our faith is rooted in something that is true. You see, our relationship with God is forever secured by a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Our standing with God does not depend on our current circumstances. It doesn't depend on our experiences or our feelings, good or bad. This is truly good news and the only place to find comfort, the only place to find consolation and strength during the trials of life and during the tragedies that we're all going to face. And finally, because the resurrection is true, it serves as the guarantee for the life of Christian believers at the end of the, rate, at the, end of the age for the life to come. And that brings us to our last point. The resurrection of Jesus means life. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. It says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, Paul reminds us here that that death is the penalty for Adam's disobedience to God. And the curse of death came to us through Adam. Death came by a man, it says in verse 21, and and is passed on to all of Adam's descendants, which is all of us. See, Adam Adam acted as what is called the federal head. He's our representative of the human race. And it says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die. What that means is, as a consequence for Adam's disobedience, the whole entire human race was plunged into sin and death. The reason we die is because of Adam's act of rebellion. Before we come to Christ, we are dead spiritually, and we will die physically one day. But Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So because of the sin of Adam, we were born in trespasses and sins ourselves. 
We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But there's hope. Look with me again at verse 21. It says, for, by a man came de- for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Because death came by a man, the reversal of the curse must also come through a man, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, like, unlike Adam, Jesus wasn't just a man. It's another uh, of the earliest claims of the Christians is that Jesus is truly God himself. He is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit, who took on human flesh, who came to earth to save his people from their sins. You see, the resurrection, it also establishes proof of Jesus' deity, that he is God in human flesh, whose death upon the cross for us and in our place accomplishes our salvation, if we believe, if we really believe and truly believe that these things happen. You see, it's not just enough to know the facts about the gospel. We have to believe it. We have to lay hold of it. We have to believe in our hearts that it's true. Thomas Boston, a Scottish Presbyterian, wrote this. He said, and I quote, He had remained in the grave if it had been reasonable to believe him only an ordinary person and that his death had been the just punishment of his presumption in calling himself the Son of God. If If those things are true, then... Our faith is not true. But as we pointed out, Jesus didn't remain in the grave. He is risen. See, the resurrection was the triune God's amen to all that Christ did on earth in accomplishing salvation for his people. And because the resurrection of Jesus is true, death doesn't have to be the end of the story. It's why Paul says that those who have died in Christ or who have died in faith have merely fallen asleep. He goes on to say in Ephesians, quote, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, because the resurrection of Jesus is true, we can have assurance in our own bodily resurrection when he comes again at his return. Because Jesus conquered death in the grave, the newness of life that we experience now will be ours in eternity. If we believe, if we are trusting in Christ, if we're doing that, his victory will be our victory. What that means is because Jesus rose from the dead, also too will those united to him by faith. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've hung all your hope on him to save you from your sin, you've already been raised with Christ positionally. We're there with him positionally, as Paul said in Ephesians. And on on the last day, we will be there with him physically. We'll be made like him The newness of life that we experience as Christians in the here and now spiritually will be ours in eternity physically because of the resurrection of Christ. Now, we've talked a lot about this morning about the resurrection of Jesus as being of first importance. 
We talked about why we can believe that it's true. We've talked about it as being historical facts, as things grounded and rooted in history. We've talked about the eyewitness testimony. We've talked about that for the human race as those born dead in sins and trespasses, the resurrection means life if we believe. But the challenge for us remains. You see, we live in a society that rejects the idea of objective truth when it comes to matters of faith. We we live in a society that believes things are true or not depending on how we feel. We live in a society that believes things are true or not based on whether or not it's working for us. We, believe, we live in a society that believes everything is relative. They believe that what's true for you may not be true for me. But I hope you, believe, I hope you see this morning that if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and it is, those things that society tells us can't be true. And because the resurrection of Jesus is true, our relationship with God does not depend on how we feel about ourselves and what's working or not working for us. Our salvation depends on what Jesus did and in our place. Our salvation was accomplished for us on a Roman cross about 2,000 years ago, just outside of Jerusalem. Faith is our act of trusting in what Jesus did for us to save us from our sins. But there can be no saving faith apart from the facts of the gospel. And faith can be our response, only our response to those facts. And the facts of the gospel are these. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and raised on the third day. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, the gospel doesn't depend on how sorry we are for what we've done. It doesn't depend on worldly guilt. It doesn't depend on the good things we have done, as the case may be. It doesn't matter how sincere we are or how, how good we think our deeds have made us. It doesn't believe on any of those things. What it matters is coming to the realization that the gospel is true, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that Christ is that perfect Savior, and that God truly raised him from the dead. It's a matter of life and death. You see, if you're driving down the highway in a car doing 60 miles an hour and you're headed toward a bridge and you see a sign that says, bridge out 100 feet, the truth of that sign doesn't matter on your opinion. The bridge is either out or it's not. What you choose to believe about that sign is a matter of life and death. It's the same thing with the resurrection. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the sign that claims that Christian faith is true. The truth of the resurrection doesn't matter on our opinion. It's a matter of fact. It either happened or it didn't. And what you choose to believe about the resurrection is also a matter of life and death. So my question for you this morning is this. What do you believe? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ or if you're on the fence, You have the facts. Can you still deny that Jesus rose from the dead? Can you still deny that everything he says about himself is true? You see, all of us know that there's something deeply wrong with this world. And because Christianity is true, we understand that what's wrong with the world is that it was plunged into sin by the fall of Adam. 
And as a descendant of Adam, you were born dead in sins and trespasses. And you need a Savior. And Jesus is that perfect Savior. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, call out to him today. If you're not sure what you believe, I would love to talk to you after the service or one of the elders of the church or Pastor Musser. We would all love to speak with you about the truth of the gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do you believe that your faith is not blind but rooted and grounded in actual historical facts? Do you believe that your faith is rooted and grounded around a Savior who rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of God and who will come again on the last day? This is the confidence that as Christians we have, no matter what the world says to the contrary. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we just thank you, God, for the truth of your gospel. We thank you for, indeed, that Christ is raised from the dead, that our faith is not in vain, that we are not dead in our sins. We praise you, God, for all the glorious things that you have done in the resurrection of Jesus. So I just pray, Lord, that you would allow these truths that have entered our mind to penetrate our hearts and to pierce us to the core, that you would grow us in our faith, that you would grow us in our love, that you would draw our affections away from this world and towards the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. In his name I pray. Amen.